Hello, my name is Roger Henderson. I'm a GP in Dumfries and Galloway, and I also co-host the GP Notebook study groups. Welcome to this GP Notebook podcast, where we discuss bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. You can find us on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Do please follow us to receive notifications about new episodes, and if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review to help other listeners find us. You can also follow us on Twitter at GP Notebook for more information about new podcast episodes and study groups, and you can follow me there too, at Roger the Doctor. Finally, you can visit gpnotebookpodcast.com for podcast episode show notes and gpnotebookeducation.com to find out more about upcoming study group meetings. In this episode, we'll be discussing obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA. Now, this is a relatively common condition and is estimated to affect around one and a half million adults in the UK. Unfortunately, up to 85% of those affected are undiagnosed and untreated, despite treatment being relatively straightforward. Basically, in OSA, there's intermittent and repeated collapse of the upper airways during sleep. This causes irregular breathing at night and excessive sleepiness during the day. Unfortunately, the incidence of OSA is increasing as the incidence of obesity is rising. Now, complete apnea is defined as a 10-second pause in breathing activity. Partial apnea, sometimes known as hypopnea, is characterised by a 10-second period in which ventilation is reduced by around 50% at least. So OSA is defined by five or more respiratory events, such as apneas, per hour, in association with symptoms of sleep-disordered breathing. So let's look at some risk factors for OSA. Now, the strongest risk factor is obesity. And as I say, as obesity is increasing, OSA is increasing. Being male is a risk, as is being middle-aged. Smoking, sedative drugs and excessive alcohol consumption are all well known to increase the risk of OSA, as does a family history. Unfortunately, obese children also have now been shown to have a higher prevalence and severity of OSA. So separate to the health risks of OSA, such as increased risk of heart disease, OSA also causes an increased risk of car crashes. And a rather depressing statistic is that one in four road accidents in the UK are linked to excessive sleepiness. In my experience as well, there may also be marital disharmony, for example, such as sleeping in separate bedrooms. This may be linked to sexual problems. There also may be a fear of falling asleep on public transport or going to work. And there also may be employment difficulties. Now, if there is a history of snoring, then witnessed apneic attacks when asleep and reported excessive daytime sleepiness those two combinations together, then we should always consider OSA as a diagnosis. NICE suggests a patient should be assessed for OSA if they report two or more of the following snoring, often excessive, apneic episodes that are witnessed, 
poor quality and unrefreshing sleep with unexplained excessive tiredness, choking episodes during sleep, memory impairment, nocturia, and headaches on waking. That seems fairly straightforward, but we should always consider an alternative diagnosis whose symptoms may mimic those of obstructive sleep apnea. And unfortunately, there are multiple possible alternative diagnoses that can cause similar symptoms to OSA. Off the top of my head, these include insomnia, the effects of shift work, prescribed drugs such as hypnotics, SSRIs, beta blockers, as well as alcohol and stimulants such as caffeine. Don't forget too that restless leg syndrome may also cause daytime fatigue, as can undiagnosed hypothyroidism, narcolepsy, Parkinson's and depression. Now, we may all have heard of the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, and this is a quick and easy questionnaire which can be used during a consultation to help assess sometimes daytime sleepiness. The score is an addition of the answers given to eight questions, each scored from 0 to 3. A score of 0 to 10 is considered normal. 11 to 14 is mild daytime sleepiness. 15 to 18, moderate daytime sleepiness. And 19 to 24 is considered severe daytime sleepiness. I also like to use the stop-bang screening questionnaire along with the Epworth scale to help confirm the likely diagnosis. And three or more yes answers to the stop-bang questionnaire also suggests a high risk of OSA. And I think it's important to try to not use the Epworth sleepiness scale alone to determine if referral is needed because not all people with OSA have excessive sleepiness. And that's an important point to consider. Both the Epworth sleepiness scale and the stop bang screening questionnaire can be easily downloaded online. If the Epworth sleepiness score is over 18, or the patient has had a road traffic incident or near-miss event recently, then urgent referral is suggested. And those people with signs of respiratory failure or heart failure with OSA should also be referred urgently. Now, do remember that simple clinical assessment is often insufficient to make a diagnosis of OSA, and there are often no specific diagnostic findings when we examine patients we suspect have OSA. And the diagnosis is made through different levels of, of nocturnal monitoring that aim to detect changes in blood oxygen saturation levels along with witnessed confirmed apneic episodes. If we're referring people with suspected OHA to our local sleep service, it's always important to include specific information in the referral letter because the more information that can be provided to a sleep clinic, the more useful that letter is in terms of whittling out alternative possible diagnoses. So, I like to include the results of the person's sleepiness score, how sleepiness affects them, their body mass index, and any coexisting comorbidities. It's also helpful, I think, to include any occupational risk, oxygen sat levels, if they're available, and any history of emergency admissions and acute non-invasive ventilation. Always prioritise people for rapid assessment if they've got hypoxemia, by which I, by which I mean an oxygen saturation less than 94% in air, 
if they've got a vocational driving job or a job for which vigilance is critical for safety. Pregnant people should also be referred rapidly. They should also be prioritised if they have unstable cardiovascular disease or they're undergoing preoperative assessment for major surgery. The traditional gold standard investigation does remain polysomnography. And this includes taking various physiological readings whilst the patient is asleep in a clinical setting overnight. And it can involve the use of an EEG, electrooculograms to measure eye movements, and electromyogram to monitor muscle movement. Now, at the end of a sleep study, the number of apnea or hypopnea episodes whilst asleep is calculated. And this is known as the apnea-hypopnea index, or AHA. Now, this is very important because it determines OSA severity and is calculated by the sum of apneas and hypopneas divided by the number of hours sleep. So, mild OSA is scored with an AHA of 5 to 14.9 per hour. Moderate ASA, OSA is 15 to 29.9 per hour. And severe OSA as an AHI score of 30 per hour or more. Now, if polysomnography is limited in your area, then oximetry and more limited respiratory monitoring can also be used for a diagnosis to be made. If the diagnosis is made, then the goal of treatment is to try to restore optimal breathing during the night and also to relieve associated symptoms. So management does need to be based on a holistic approach, which includes lifestyle modifications such as weight loss, stopping smoking and alcohol avoidance. Unfortunately, weight loss by itself is no guarantee that OSA symptoms will reduce significantly, although this obviously can occur in some people. The usual treatment does remain CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure, and this needs to be worn for a minimum of four hours each night. However, patient compliance can be extremely variable. And if a patient stops their CPAP, then symptom recurrence typically occurs a few days later. A recent Cochrane review has suggested there is insufficient current evidence to recommend the use of any drug therapy in the treatment of OSA. And this includes the treatment options solriamfetol and pitolisant hydrochloride. One of the few exceptions to this, I suppose, is the use of medications such as leukotriene antagonists and topical nasal steroids in children with mild OSA, especially with associated allergies. Driving in OSA is a question that we are often asked about in our surgeries, and regarding driving, all patients with OSA that causes excessive daytime or awake time sleepiness do need to cease driving until satisfactory control of symptoms has been attained. Those with group, group 2 entitlement should also cease driving until satisfactory control has been attained, with ongoing compliance of treatment confirmed by a consultant or a specialist. However, patients do not need to stop driving or inform the DVLA if they're being investigated for or have a diagnosis of sleep apnea, but do not experience symptoms of daytime sleepiness that are of a severity likely to impair driving. 
Now, patients should inform the DVLA but not cease driving if they're successfully using CPAP or mandibular positioning device. However, as long as the patient is compliant with treatment and their symptoms are controlled such that they no longer impair driving, their license should not be affected. If you have a patient that responds to CPAP, the short-term short prognosis is excellent and this is obviously good news. There's a positive benefit in terms of reduction in daytime sleepiness and snoring and a general improvement in cognitive function and health status after as little as four weeks of treatment with CPAP. Treatment can also significantly decrease cardiovascular complications, especially in those patients with severe OSA, and CPAP can also significantly reduce blood pressure in patients with comorbid hypertension and OSA. And the current evidence is in agreement that OSA treatment decreases all-cause mortality in patients with hypertension and OSA. Oral appliances as a treatment are interesting. They can be an alternative to CPAP for the treatment of patients with mild to moderate OSA or for people with severe OSA who can't tolerate CPAP. And mandibular advanced splints would be a prime example of these. However, the aim of all of them is to retain the mandible in a forward position overnight, and treatment with these is often safe and well tolerated. However, they shouldn't be considered usually in people with tooth decay, people with few or no teeth, or people who suffer with generalized tonic-clonic seizures. Surgery is sometimes considered in severe OSA, but I have to say the evidence of the effectiveness of this is limited. NICE do recommend that tonsillectomy can be considered for people with OSA who have large obstructive tonsils and a BMI of less than 35. And they also say that oropharyngeal surgery can be considered in people with severe OSA who cannot tolerate CPAP or customised mandibular advancement splints despite medically supervised attempts. Fortunately, novel treatment options for OSA are currently being assessed in the NHS. These include electrical stimulation of the hypoglossal nerve in moderate to severe OSA, where a stimulator device is implanted under the chest skin with an electrode placed on the hypoglossal nerve and is activated during sleep time. Early studies suggest this is well tolerated and does produce a subjective improvement in the quality of life and daytime sleepiness of people who have tried this device. Intraoral neuromuscular electrical stimulation devices, such as Excite OSA, that are app-based, placed in the mouth for 20 minutes a day and which aim to strengthen tongue muscles in order to reduce mild OSA and snoring in adults, have also shown initial promise and are undergoing further trials in the UK. So, that's a very quick overview of obstructive sleep apnea, and I do hope you found this podcast helpful. Do please have a look at the show notes that accompany this episode at gpnotebookpodcast.com, and we'd be very grateful if you'd consider following the podcast and leaving us a review on your favourite podcast platform. Feel free to get in touch via social media at gpnotebook or email support at gpnotebook.com if you have any questions, comments or ideas for future podcasts. Thank you for listening and as always, until next time, goodbye.